Hi, everyone. I'm excited to talk to you today on the official President's Day about a new study that links changes in the brain with autism behavior. We shared the study on social media. It's so incredibly impactful to families and research, so of course I'm going to include it on the podcast too. Plenty of research, although probably not enough, have used brain imaging techniques to study the brains of people with autism after they've been diagnosed. They've been used to understand what areas of the brain are bigger or smaller, or what areas of the brain are activated or not activated during different tasks that tap into different abilities like social emotional processing or motor tasks. However, they've all been done after a person has a diagnosis. That's useful and it's important and it's needed. But what hasn't happened is the ability to look at the brain before an autism diagnosis is made. 10 years ago, that would have been totally impossible. You'd have to just randomly select thousands of children's have their brains imaged a few times, and then wait for them to get a diagnosis or not have a diagnosis. That's an okay design if you're looking at a range of health outcomes like the National Children's Study was, but it's not feasible if you're looking just for autism. In the past decade, researchers now know that there are risk factors for autism. One of them is having an older sibling in the family with a diagnosis. Instead of being one in 68, the rate of autism in siblings with a diagnosis is one in five. Out of the other four of the five, about 30% have significant features of autism that are not considered a clinical diagnosis, but are considered somewhat symptoms. They can include language delay, tics, motor issues, and other problems. But focusing on that one in five versus that one in 68 allows researchers to better identify signs and symptoms earlier. Just recently at UC Davis, a new red flag for autism was identified and validated. It was not responding to name. And this is seen as early as nine months of age. Why is this sort of thing important? If you're a parent concerned about your child's development, these red flags are everything. Having tangible signs and symptoms to bring to a service provider to get help for your child is key. And with early intervention showing more and more evidence of being effective, these kids can get in early and stay, and many of them show improvements in behavior. In addition to signs and symptoms, researchers can better understand biomarkers. Biomarkers are biological markers that may signal autism before symptoms emerge, or they can also measure treatment response. If you could detect autism before behavioral symptoms are seen, this may be a key time to provide interventions which rewire the brain and possibly reduce certain symptoms. For example, something called the Early Start Denver model has been shown to change the electrical activity of the brain along with alleviating some of the core symptoms of autism in young children. Heather Hazlitt at University of North Carolina took infant sibs and looked at their brains through an MRI as young as six months of age. These parents, already having a child with autism, were incredibly committed to the project and brought them back at 12, 18, and 24 months of age to be rescanned. It was hard to wait from that first six-month visit to the 24-month diagnosis. And of course, concerned parents took their kids to whatever treatment facility they could in the meantime. They were encouraged to. At 24 months, they were finally either given a diagnosis or not given a diagnosis. These brain scans were then compared to those that were low risk, meaning they were infants in the community with no family history of autism. Now, what they found was amazing. In the infants with autism, remember those that were at risk and then got a diagnosis, 
The nerve cells in the cortex of the brain, which receive incoming information from the environment, including sights, smells, and sounds, grew and expanded at an accelerated pace between 6 and 12 months. That led to more of a brain surface in these children, which in turn contributed to faster-growing brains in the first year of life. By the time these children were two years old, when the symptoms, the behavioral features start to emerge, their brains had already experienced a different growth pattern than those of kids who weren't affected. These findings complement a study a year or so ago from the same group that showed the corpus callosum, the fibers that connect the two sides of the brain, were thicker and bigger at six months of age in those who were later diagnosed with autism. It also points out that bigger is not necessarily better as brain connections that are supposed to form don't form because others are in the way, so to speak. Even more interesting is that they used an algorithm or a formula to see if they can use those brain scans to pick out kids at 12 months who would be later diagnosed with autism at 24 months. They then tested this brain algorithm on a separate group of kids, and it was 80% accurate, meaning this might be a very valuable tool in the future to detect autism in the very, very young. But for now, let's be clear. These findings only applied to kids who had an older sibling. But more importantly, right now, pediatricians don't have the capacity to do a 12-month MRI on all kids to possibly detect for signs of autism. Maybe they will in the future, but they don't now. And it wasn't like it's totally easy to get these couple of hundred kids to sit still in an MRI machine three times. This study is incredibly interesting and it's incredibly important, but the practical implications aren't there today. This is the sort of discovery that will make the opportunities for early detection in autism through biomarkers more feasible in the future. Speaking of age and symptom presentation, it's becoming more and more clear that this doesn't just affect brain development and autism symptoms, but comorbid conditions and associated features. This week, a group at Stanford analyzed data from a huge database that, of people of just at Stanford and managed to find almost 5,000 individuals with autism in there. Then they looked at some of these comorbid symptoms and associated features across sex, well, thank you, and then also across different ages. This can tell doctors whether or not to expect a symptom more often in a boy or a girl, or even better, what features might get better over time or worse. Their results were fascinating, and I want to give the Venon group at Stanford total props because this complicated data set was presented as clearly as I've ever seen this sort of thing presented. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Overall, they found that things like epilepsy, ADHD, cranial abnormalities, sleep disorders, schizophrenia, and bowel disorders were more prevalent in the autism population than the non-autism population providing further evidence that a significant portion of individuals with autism experience an additional burden of comorbid conditions. This was actually no big surprise. It's been shown before, but worth mentioning. What was new was that they found that when they examined by sex and age, epilepsy, ADHD, and cranial abnormalities were evident in surprisingly large proportions, over 15% in the youngest autism group, which was 0 to 18 years, children. However, their prevalence rates decreased drastically with age. Take, for example, epilepsy. The rates are 15 times higher than that in the general population, higher in females overall. Except when you get to 35 years, when there was an upshoot in the presence of epilepsy in males with autism. 
This is good news. The fact that it's decreasing over time means that it emerges in childhood and adolescence and then either decrease on its own or it's effectively treated later on in life. However, in males, particularly those older than 35, it may be harder to treat and they are still showing symptoms later on. Rates of ADHD were higher in children and then decreased with age in both sexes. In contrast, the prevalence of schizophrenia increased significantly with males affecting a disproportionately large number of older males with autism. This isn't so surprising. The age of onset of schizophrenia isn't normally until early adulthood. Bowel disorders showed a U-shaped pattern characterized by complex changes in sex disparities with age. This means they were more common in men at younger ages, but then more common in women at older ages mostly because the rates in men decreased with age, but the rates increased in women. Importantly, the patterns were quite distinct from those observed in the non-autism population. The findings discussed highlight the crucial differences between comorbidity patterns and their interaction with sex and age and autism, and emphasize the importance of looking at comorbid features for better characterization of autism. This study wasn't able to follow people with autism across time. It didn't take the same person and follow them across, say, 50 years. It just took groups of children and looked at them, then groups of adults and looked at them. The longitudinal study is probably a better way to study it, but you can't really do that with 5,000 people over 35 years. So there is a payoff in getting more data now. So sex and age, it's very important. And thank you to Great Science This Week that overshadowed political nonsense in the area of autism.